start by welcoming uh, Susan once again. Uh, sometimes I, I feel like all I need to say is um, welcome to a, uh, a compassionate and wise uh, follower of the Buddha way who's come to speak to us about our life and our practice. And that maybe would be enough. Um, but usually we say more, so I will say more. Uh, and, and lately what uh, has interested Susan is uh, writing and, and thinking about our aging. And she's been writing some books on that. Uh, in the last few years, she's published two books. Uh, this is Getting Old and Alive Until You're Dead, Two different those two different titles. And I've read them both, and I commend them to you, as um, especially if you find yourself in the category of a person who is aging, which is pretty much everybody. Um, and um, uh, she always brings a, a good sense of humor and uh, oh, insight, also wise insight into her thinking about just about any topic. And I'm quite looking forward and uh, anticipating tonight's uh meditation, uh, if you will, on um, the um, topic of um, living a comfortable life while witnessing great suffering. Thank you, Jim. Can you hear me? Because I can't hear you at all. <laughs> uh, but maybe I don't need to hear you right this minute. Uh, I can't hear you. Um, it would be a little reassuring if I could. Uh, could you hear me when I was introducing you? I heard you when you introduced me. Not very well, but I did. Yes, and now I hear you. Okay, well... Um, uh, we we don't really need to say much more now, okay. so uh, please please go ahead. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. Okay. Thank you. Uh, it's really good to be here again with these old friends at Valley Streams, where I've been coming for a long time. Um, yeah, and I want to say that the last time I was here was a year ago. I, I came in person last December to give a talk. And I want to just acknowledge um, the death of Linda Decker since that time. I know you; she died last spring, so her absence is not new to you, but it feels new to me because it's the first time I've been here since she died. And I really appreciated her very much and know how hard she worked to create the Sacramento Dharma Center and what a really committed Dharma practitioner she was. And I knew her through... Sacramento Dharma Center and through Green Gulch Farm as well. So I honor Linda Decker. I, can you all hear me well now still? Is this good? Okay. So, um, yeah, the, the title of the talk that Jim gave, which is something I told him some time ago, is perhaps of living comfortably in a world full of suffering or something like that. It's not so much about living comfortably. It wasn't a very good title that I came up with. So, um, But I, I want to uh, 
I want to speak about the contradictions and and about bearing witness. So I could also say that the talk is is about bearing witness. And I'm really glad to have the opportunity to talk to you uh, about the how we face the difficulties of the times we're living in. And uh, it's so raw right now, and, and I'm sure I'm not the only one wondering how to practice with the suffering in Israel-Palestine. I, I want to say I'm not going to talk politics tonight. I just at all. I want to talk about how do we how do we bear witness? How do we manage to live our lives so full of contradictions, uh, knowing what the reality is far away and knowing what our own reality is here? And I really believe that it helps us to listen to each other and to talk with each other, even about painful subjects especially about painful subjects. And it really helps to bring our Dharma practice into our conversation. So I'm in the role of giving the Dharma talk tonight, but I'll save time for discussion after my talk because I really want to hear from others and I want you all to have a chance to join the conversation. I live in a comfortable house in Berkeley with my sister and brother-in-law. And it's my habit to listen to the early morning news on the radio while I do some exercises. Almost every morning since October 7th, I've been hearing about the war in the Middle East. I learn about people being buried in rubble, about people waiting and waiting to find out if their kidnapped loved ones are alive. I learn that children are dying in hospitals that have no supplies to care for them. Every morning, my heart is broken open. After my exercises, with my heart still broken, I take a shower, get dressed, and go into the kitchen to make myself a nice breakfast of oatmeal with fruit and yogurt. As you know, the Dharma teaches that all things are impermanent. All things are empty of a fixed self-nature. I am empty of I. The good news is that I am not alone, and all things are interconnected. I accept this teaching. I believe it intuitively and I find it helps me to practice. But what does it really mean, and how do I work with it right now? I'll be sharing a lot of questions with you in my talk and no answers. So I want to um, put out the questions, too. Lately, people have been quoting Thich Nhat Hanh's poem a lot, Please Call Me By My True Names. Tai wrote this poem in 1976, when refugees we called the boat people were fleeing South Vietnam after the collapse of the American-backed government. The part of the poem that is most often quoted is this. I am the 12-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate, and I am also the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I have heard this remarkable poem so many times since 1976 that it's hard to hear it freshly now, and yet it has a fresh meaning for us now. The poem invites me to identify with both the pirate and the child, to realize that I'm not separate from either one of them. What I have been noticing recently is that while it may be easier to have empathy for the child, It's actually as hard for me to identify with her situation as with the pirates. 
how can I possibly say that I am the girl who was raped and threw herself overboard when I'm safe at home? How do I connect myself with the suffering I hear about on the news? One morning, about a week after the Hamas attack, I was in the shower, feeling the hot water loosening the joints that had stiffened in sleep. I suddenly thought of the people who, in the very moment of my showering, have not only no hot water to shower in, but no water to drink. I stood still in the shower, imagining people dying while buried in rubble. Ty would have me remember that I am these people too. How are these two realities possible at the same time? If I am a Palestinian grandmother trapped under the collapsed walls of my home, how can I be taking a shower in Berkeley? If I am an Israeli mother torn from her children and locked as a hostage in an underground tunnel, how can I be washing my hair with coconut shampoo? Our individual bodies are impermanent. All the species living on earth are impermanent. The earth itself is impermanent, of course, and even the sun is impermanent. The sun has lived about half its lifespan. It came into being about five million years ago, and in another five billion years, the sun will turn into a red giant and absorb our planet. How do I know this? I was curious, and I looked it up on the internet. It calms me down a little to be reminded that in cosmological time, our species is a blink in the universe's eye. Contemplating the past and future history of the universe gives me a glimpse of vast emptiness and interconnectedness. Now, I come back to what we call the news. There was a time when human beings knew nothing of the doings of other people far away. They had no books, no telephones, no internet, no telegraph. What was it like before there was news from afar? It sounds kind of peaceful to me. Now we know so much, whether we like it or not. Does watching or reading or listening to the news make our suffering worse? And if it does, if thinking about what's going on in the Middle East causes me great despair, should I choose not to think about it? not even to know about it? Or could taking a break from following the news be helpful? Is there a balance point between taking in too much and burying one's head in the sand? We can't possibly respond to everything we learn about, so why should we learn about all of it? And yet I do feel a responsibility to follow the news such as it is. I listen to the radio. I don't like to look at the pictures. I keep in mind that whatever news I follow is only a part of the truth. And I also feel obliged to share in some way what concerns me. But how helpful is it to greet my sister in the morning with the news I just heard on the radio of the latest number of children who have died in Gaza? Not a good way to greet her. What is the right way to speak of these things? When is the right time? 
How would I want to be told about things like this? What does bearing witness mean to me in my life in Berkeley? I belonged, excuse me, I belong to a women's group. We call ourselves the Crohn's group, and we meet monthly to talk about how we can support each other in facing the challenges of aging and being mortal. At the end of our last meeting, we were choosing our topic for the next meeting. Someone suggested we talk about how we face what is going on in the Middle East, and there was a collective groan of, oh no. A couple of other topics, depressing topics, were suggested, wills, dementia, and rejected. We have talked about things like that, I will say, but they were rejected this time. I offered, how about what gives us joy? And that was eagerly chosen. Yes, don't we have a responsibility to find joy, to be grateful for this precious human birth, not to throw away these gifts? I'll come back to this. The Zen Peacemaker Order can help us think about how to live with the knowledge of terrible violence and war, because a central part of their practice is to go directly to places of great physical and mental suffering, to be present and to meditate in those places. The Peacemaker Order has three tenets, not knowing, bearing witness, and taking appropriate action. Not knowing is highly valued in Zen. It's what Suzuki Roshi was talking about when he said, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, only a few. Not knowing does not mean maintaining ignorance or refusing to know what you don't want to know. It means not knowing what the answer is, being open to possibility, listening. It means being able to greet the moment as it is. I recently attended a powerful, moving Zoom meeting organized by the Zen Peacemaker Order. I think it was just last week. I wonder if any of you went to it. Some of you may have. I It wasn't labeled this way, but I saw the meeting as a demonstration of the second tenet bearing witness. Four people in Israel-Palestine, all connected to the Zen Peacemakers, spoke about their personal situations and experiences since October 7th. Two Jews and two Palestinians, all of them companions through Zen peacemakers, told their painful stories of recent events. A Jewish man in southern Israel told of taking his grandson for a trip. When they heard sirens warning of possible bombing, The boy lay down on the ground, and his grandfather lay on top of him to protect him. The boy was terrified. The man said that now he has no hope anymore. And then, seeming suddenly shocked by the bleakness of what he had just said, he added, Or perhaps my only hope is that everything is so broken that there's a chance that something new and good could come out of it. Another speaker was an Israeli woman in Tel Aviv. She had been in New York visiting relatives when the Hamas attack took place, and she flew immediately back to Israel. When the moderator asked her opinion about something, 
She was silent for a long time. And then she said, I have no opinions. I am choosing not to have an opinion about anything. There are more than two opinions, more than two sides. There are many, many sides. I am so sad. There is so much hatred. Even in the hospital, even in the university here, there is hatred among people who have been working together. I'm afraid to have opinions and attitudes. She said this with, with just a devastated expression on her face. She continued, part of not knowing is bearing witness, but to what? She said she asked her teacher, how can we stand to bear witness? My teacher said, your heart is here, so drop into it. This is your shelter, just be present. I like that, I'll say that again. Your heart is here, so drop into it. This is your shelter, just be present. Don't worry about practicing the third tenet action, her teacher said. The doing arises from being present. She paused and had another thought that came. She said, I have a good friend who lives nearby who is always cooking now. The only thing she is able to do is cook. We heard from a young Palestinian mother who lives in an Arab village in northern Israel with her Palestinian husband. She is allowed to live there because her husband is an Israeli citizen, but she herself is not a citizen and has no papers. Her children are the only Palestinians in the Waldorf school they go to. This has not been a problem at all so far, but now she worries because there is so much hatred growing in Israel on all sides. And she is afraid when she drives her children to school that she will be stopped on the road by soldiers and sent to prison because she has no papers. The atmosphere of hatred is very triggering. She said, each group wants you to be on their side. I take the side of life, she said. This is a big test for all of us, she said. A few days ago, I went to a peace vigil and I made a sign that was inspired by this woman, Dina's comment, when she said, each group wants you to be on their side, but I take the side of life. So I wrote a sign that said, there is only one side, the side of life. I was grateful to her for giving me that thought, those words. Dina started what she calls the Eddie Hillisum Project. Eddie Hillisum was a young Jewish writer in Amsterdam during the Holocaust. Maybe some of you have read her diaries. They're wonderful. They're notable for recording not only the Nazi persecutions, but also her deep faith in God. During the German occupation, Eddie worked with an organization for Jewish welfare in the Netherlands, and she refused offers to go into hiding. In 1943, she was sent to Auschwitz and murdered there two months later when she was only 29. Dina publishes and distributes cards with quotations from Eddie Hillisum on them. I ordered a box of them by email right after the Zoom meeting, and I immediately got an email back from Dina asking me for my street address so she could send them, which I had forgotten to give her. 
it felt good and also mysterious to be connected to her in such a familiar, ordinary way, sending her my address for something she was going to mail me, while she is living a life turned upside down in a place turned upside down by violence. Not wanting to wait until my cards came, I looked up quotes from Eddie Hillisom. Here is one. Ought we not, from time to time, open ourselves to cosmic sadness? Give your sorrow all the space and shelter in yourself that it is due. For if everyone bears grief honestly and courageously, the sorrow that now fills the world will abate. But if you reserve most of the space inside you for hatred and thoughts of revenge, from which new sorrows will be born for others, then sorrow will never cease in this world and will multiply. So I'll read the first sentences of that again. Ought we not from time to time open ourselves to cosmic sadness? Give your sorrow all the space and shelter in yourself that is its due. For if everyone bears grief honestly and courageously, the sorrow that now fills the world will abate. I become sad when I listen to the news and I learn about the suffering. I carry this sadness around with me through the day. Is this what Ed, Eddie Hillisom is talking about? Giving space with my, within myself to sorrow? Yes, that's important, but it's not a place to get stuck. Bearing witness can take one further than that. It's a simple thing to send metta to the people of Israel-Palestine. It helps me whether or not it helps them directly. Bearing witness is a way of sharing sorrow, and when sorrow is shared, it can become loving kindness. Other steps may reveal themselves if you're open. You can listen to people you haven't listened to before and try to understand. If you have a public voice, you can educate others, or you can write to a senator. This is the important realm of action, but that's not my focus tonight. I listened to a recent Dharma talk online by the Tibetan teacher Tubten Chodron about the Middle East. It was helpful. She has taught in Israel and in Gaza and has both Jewish and Palestinian friends there. She read out loud a letter from a Dharma student of hers living in Israel who spoke of the violence on both sides, saying that Tubten's teaching has helped her turn her anger into compassion. Tubton commented on this letter in a very calm way. I found it reassuring that she wasn't getting upset. She didn't use any loaded words. She was not numb. She was compassionate as she spoke of terrible things in a calm voice. She said, what motivates everybody is simply the wish to have happiness and not suffering. But in our ignorance, we do actions that bring more suffering in the present and create the karma for future suffering. She said, it's hard to know what you can do from here now. But one thing you can do is to pray for the people who are suffering. You can pray for peace and let people know you are praying for them. Whether the prayers themselves help or not, it helps people to know that they are not forgotten.
I have to mention the practice of gratitude. I shouldn't throw away the gifts that have been given me. I'm grateful for the precious gift of human birth and all the other gifts that come along with it. Joy, too, is part of our practice. Thich Nhat Hanh said we have a responsibility to be happy. One of the six paramitas is virya, sometimes translated as joyful energy. One of the four heavenly abodes is sympathetic joy. Aligning ourselves with joy, nurturing joy, this is peace work too. I was an activist before I was a Buddhist. When I first started practicing, I used to ask, why is it okay to spend our precious time sitting still on a cushion doing nothing when there is so much suffering in the world and so much work to be done? I'm not asking that question anymore. I've learned that there are two parts to Zen practice, two parts to Bodhisattva practice. There's sitting down and there's getting up and they they complete each other. Today I'm asking a different question. It has to do with being at peace with myself as I get up, shower, sit, and eat. My question is about bearing witness. Bearing is a good word for it because it's hard to bear. How can I bear bearing witness? It takes courage and a willingness to allow myself to feel both joy and sorrow while I bear the contradiction between my situation and that of the people in Israel-Palestine. It takes courage that comes with joining others, feeling my connection with others, knowing I am not alone. Those things bolster my courage. I want to end with a quote from Norman Fisher. And interestingly, it's from a Dharma talk he gave just five days after 9-11 in 2001. And it's tragically resonant today. That time period is. Sometimes the starkness of reality makes meditation practice seem irrelevant. But meditation practice itself, the simple practice of being quiet, and if possible, being quiet together in community for our mutual support, the practice of listening deeply to the cries of the world and opening to what we hear, that practice is more relevant now than ever. We need to bear witness to what has happened, to take it in, imagine it, feel it, grieve over it, accept it, not accept it, understand it, fail to understand it, and comfort each other in that. I appreciate how he allows us to fail to understand. He allows us to not accept it sometimes, too. To do that, we need to sit. We need the expansiveness of our sitting as well as of our chanting and our prayers. It seems absolutely essential. So I'll stop there. And I want to have some conversation with you all. And I I thought I'd like to begin with uh, asking people to... Be, go into dyads the Zoom host can put the Zoom people into pairs in Zoom rooms and those of you in the room can just 
sit next to somebody else, get together with somebody else. And we'll just take 10 minutes for this. Uh, so uh, three minutes, each person can talk for about three minutes and then talk for a few minutes more together until the bell rings. And when it's your turn to talk, I encourage you to just speak without any interruption. The listener just listens. No dialogue. Just give yourself that time. And if you fall silent, that's okay. But it's your turn to talk. And then the other person's turn the same. So you should have a little time at the end to talk. But you can kind of time yourselves with the three minutes. So um, can we, in the room, you can go ahead and, and find a partner. And on Zoom, we can get put into pairs. And um, we've got and we've got a, a pair to be in a pair there. Gordon and Meg, you can go with somebody else. Yeah. So let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Uh, Oh, did I give you a question? No, I didn't give you a question. I forgot. Wait. Host, can you hear me, host? We need a question. Yeah, that's right. I forgot to give a question. The question is, um, what does it mean to you to bear witness? Or what have you borne witness to in your life? So now do you need to give me a partner or does everybody have a partner? If they do, that's fine. Everyone in real here has a partner in the room. And does everyone online have a partner? I guess. Does Millard need a partner? Hmm. Looks like Millard hasn't joined. Oh, I see. Okay, well, never mind. I'll just, I'm happy to wait. So am I talking to the Zoom host? Yeah, this, this is Anthony. Okay. Can you bring us back at, um, let's say, 840 well, I don't know, about 8.43, I don't know. Bring us back at about 8.43 so we have a little bit of time for discussion. I think we can go till 5 up. That sounds good. Okay. No problem. Thank you.
Susan, just so you know, you're unmuted.
Is everybody coming back? How about the people in the room? It looks like you're still talking in pairs in the room there. Um, I think the breakout room people are here. Ours was just ended. Um, Are you calling us all back to the yes, yes, the room people in the room, please come back. Okay. Thank you. Everyone, we're coming back. <laughs> I'm glad you were having a active conversations going on. And Tofa, I want to say hi to you. It's so great to see you. Hi. I haven't seen you for a while. And Helen? Hi. And other people too. Yeah, it's really good. I was drawn by the topic of your talk, so I really appreciate your talk. Susan, I'm sitting in front of my ancestor altar. Thank you. For oh, okay. We need our ancestors in time. We need them now, yeah. And well, they're with us. And to be good inside. Well, so thank you all for for taking part in this exercise. And we have a, just a few minutes in which um, perhaps somebody would like to make a comment or um, say some, about something that you realized in your conversation just now or any thoughts that you would like to express about bearing witness, about how much is too much information, about how you take care of yourself. Hello, Susan. Yes. Thank you very much for your talk. I uh, appreciate it. And, and uh, my question is so 
fundamental. And, you know, I think that the term bearing witness may be something that seasoned Zen practitioners just have an innate sense of what you mean by that. But some of us are rather late to this practice. And that question came up in my conversation with the person next to me. Exactly. Could you define what you mean by bearing witness? Well, that is an excellent question, which I didn't really address. It was it was a lack in my talk and bearing witness. I suppose it can be understood differently, but there's a kind of long tradition of it being a kind of spiritual attention or accompanying being present with somebody else who is suffering in some way or or watching what's happening in a not just listening and looking, but really attending to sort of like being with a person as they are dying. That's a kind of bearing witness, just being present with them, offering your presence. And the word witness also suggests that maybe you're going to say something about it later. Like witnesses are called in trials. They witnessed something and so they have something to say. So I think there's also an implication that you're perhaps going to bring some news to somebody. I don't know if that's necessarily part of it, but it seems it to me. Anyway, it's a really good question and it's probably a phrase that can be understood in different ways, but always with an intention of bringing forth love. Yeah, thank you so much. And healing, yeah. What else? Yes. Oh, hi. This was a really interesting exercise and I mentioned this to my discussion partner. Well, how does one reconcile personal suffering? Because sometimes if one feels really overwhelmed in their own life, do we want to open ourselves up to yet more suffering in the world? So how does one deal with that? That's a really good question too. And sometimes you can't. You have your hands full, so to speak, with your with something intense that's happening with you. And that's what what you need to be practicing with. And uh, that's appropriate. Our lives are, are constantly full of changes. And in a way, it's, um, well, it's a gift to bear witness to somebody else's suffering. It's a gift to them. But sometimes you're the one who has to, you have to give yourself a gift. And sometimes it's possible there are situations in which your own suffering can be alleviated by bearing witness to somebody else's suffering, to joining with others in some kind of shared sorrow where you find you're not as alone as you thought you were. You know, there's also that old saw about, well, if you're feeling really terrible and depressed, go do something generous for somebody else. Well, sometimes that's helpful in the sense of, of joining with others and sharing sorrow too. So it's it's a work in progress. It's something you yourself can look into your own heart and, and find out what feels right 
and always to allow yourself to attend to yourself as much as you need to. I wonder if there's anybody on, online who would like to say so. Oh, yes, yes. Um, Meg, do you want to say something? Yeah, just on what the comments that you were just making. There's a woman at work where I work who is a Palestinian. She is from Ramallah. And um, I'm Jewish. And uh, I think it was just a few days after the war started, she knocked on the door of my office and said, "Um, can I come in? And I said, of course, Nancy. And she came in and she said, I am just coming apart at the seams. I can't stand this. I can't stand the hate. I can't stand the fear I feel. And we sat and we held one another's hands across um, two chairs and, and we're just with one another. No politics, no pointing fingers, nothing. And we now do that about once a week, sometimes more. And we just sit with one another and talk about what we've heard and what we've witnessed and what is happening and it has been a very healing thing for me to have that sense with her of us um, sitting together in the midst of it and and again she's Palestinian and I'm a Jew and um, she's become very close friend through it I haven't been well and she's the one who calls me to see how I am and and it's just a very moving thing to move past what the politics of this are and what the hate is and just sit with one another. It's really lovely. Thank you. Thank you so much for telling us about that experience. That's really, that's really important and really valuable. Uh, yeah, I'm Gordon Meg's husband. And in our little triad, I'm, I was struck by something Barbara said <clears throat> and that even though this is happening on the other side of the world. Um, we have things to say about it, and and uh, and we should not be silent. Uh, and what we say does matter, even if it's to a Palestinian. Um, I didn't. That didn't sound. No, right. it didn't. It, it, yeah, it, even if it's to. Uh, someone we that with. we disagree with, yeah, um, and um, and it is healing um, yeah. to uh, to share uh, what is on your heart with another person. Thank you so much. That's really that's really true. So that's a nice way to end. I think we have to bring our time to a close. And uh, thank you all so much for those of you who shared and all of you for being here together. And now uh, Dora Lee is going to give a dedication of merit for us. Yeah. So I'm just going to invite everyone now to stand and those on zoom also in whatever way works in your situation to stand as we enter into a dedication of merit and virtue for this evening of practice and conversation and reflection. Um, Trusting the bodhisattva of great compassion who hears the cries and heals the wounds of all the world. 
we offer the dedication of merit and virtue for our practice and discussion. May the sound of this bell extend to all nations and peoples so that all suffering will cease. May all those living in war zones find safety. May all those who suffer the loss of family and friends be comforted. May all those who initiate violence Awaken to the truth of interconnection and peace. May we walk in the possibility that peace and justice are possible. And may we together with all beings realize the Buddha way. All Buddhas, ten directions, three times all honored ones bodhisattvas mahasattvas wisdom beyond wisdom mahaprajna paramita three bows together Thank you so much, Susan. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for making this happen. Thank you, Dora Lee. Thank you, Jim. Hi to everybody. Thank you, Susan. Thank you so much. Thank you, Susan. Thank you. Good to see you all. Good night. Thank you, Susan. Good night. Good night, Helen.